Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 4, the 690s BC. Previously on Fan of History, Sennacherib, the current Assyrian ruler, had decided to lay siege to Jerusalem as Hezekiah had failed to pay the yearly tribute. Lachish had already been destroyed, and surely the Judean capital of Jerusalem would be the next city to fall. However, whether by divine intervention, plague, the Egyptian army at Pelusium, or Hezekiah buying off Sennacherib, the end result is the same. Sennacherib failed to take the city and had to go back to the Assyrian heartland. So Judah is safe, but for how long? Hi, my name is Dan. This is the last script I have. In order to continue this podcast, I need your help. If you like it, please become a patron at patreon.com slash fan of history, where you can pledge an amount of dollars per episode, maybe one or two dollars per episode. And every time it's it's a... It's a contract that goes both ways. So if I don't make any episodes, you don't pay anything. But if I make episodes, you pay. And everyone is happy. I'm also looking for a co-host. And I'm looking for more script writers. So if you feel like you would write a historical script. It could be about anything in history. Uh, please contact me. And a good place to do that is on the Fan of History Facebook page. Which is very popular. For this final episode written by Shane Soresby, for the time being, Shane, I hope you'll write more scripts, uh, we will go back to the 690s BC, so you might recognize stuff that happened in episode 70 and earlier. Returning to Nineveh, Sennacherib decided to indulge in his favorite pastime, building stuff. Earlier on, Sennacherib had commissioned the renovation of Nineveh, which became his capital instead of his father's previous capital of Dur-Sharukin. On a more personal role, Sennacherib oversaw the construction of parks, gardens and orchards, paying particular attention to his palace called the Palace Without a Rival, which I've talked about. 
The palace itself contained enormous human-headed bull sculptures known as Lamassu and over 2,000 slabs in 71 rooms. As for the gardens, recent research by British Assyrologist Stephanie Daly has suggested, as I also mentioned earlier, that these were indeed the famous hanging gardens, rather than the well-known one in Babylon, constructed by Nebuchadnezzar II in the early 6th century BC, which has never been found or proven. Sennacherib took great pleasure in these gardens that he created. But nothing lasts forever. Sennacherib was soon about to receive news of trouble brewing in the south from Babylon again. Previously in 703 BC, Sennacherib had placed a trusted Babylonian official called Bel Ibni on the throne of Babylon after Merodach Baladan had fled back to Elam. Problem was that Bel Ibni ruled Babylon incompetently, allowing southern Babylonia to do whatever they damn well pleased, with the result that Merodach Baladan once again returned from exile to instigate unrest among his own people, the Chaldeans, and also the Elamites and the Arameans. Sennacherib gathered up his army and marched south to confront the treacherous Bel Ibni, who was soon defeated and carted off to Nineveh. And remember, do you remember what happens to people that are carted off to Nineveh uh, or to the Assyrian capital world? They are never seen again, and Bel Ibni is never seen again. But what to do with troubles on Babylon? The age-old question for the Assyrians. Sennacherib could have ruled himself like Sargon II did. But Sennacherib didn't like Babylon. He wanted to remain in his own city that he was building in Nineveh. Therefore, he decided to appoint his eldest son, Asher Nadin Shumi, to the Babylonian throne instead in 700 BC. Once that was done, Sennacherib went in pursuit of the annoying Merodach Baladan. Time to get rid of him once and for all. Except by the time the Sennacherib finally located him, Merodach Baladin had died of natural causes, and those ends the great arch enemy of Assyria, Merodach Baladan, they never caught him. He resisted the empire until the very end. Well, at least he won't be bothering Sennacherib again. And with his son on the throne, Sennacherib was able to return north back to Nineveh to continue working on his palace without rival. And it might be the case here that Ashur Nadin Shumi gets this enormous responsibility to rule Babylonia. And it is quite evident, I think, that he is the heir apparent that Ashur Nadin Shumi should be the next king of Assyria. That is not what is going to happen, but that is for later. Now, what about Judah and its king Hezekiah? Regardless of what actually happened at the siege of Jerusalem, Hezekiah was still the king of Judah, albeit in a somewhat weaker position, and that was going to affect his health. The miracle of the unsuccessful siege of Jerusalem occurred around the same time as another miraculous event. Three days before Sennacherib was forced to leave Jerusalem, Hezekiah fell seriously ill. The prophet Isaiah told him that he was about to die and that the Lord was displeased because Hezekiah had not married. Hezekiah knew that his children would mislead the Jewish people, so he refused to marry. But Isaiah told him that 
human beings must not interfere with the Lord's way of governing the world. And when the king heard this, he turned towards the wall and implored the Lord that he might live. His call was heard, and Isaiah told Hezekiah that he would recover and live for another 15 years. When Hezekiah asked for a sign, Isaiah replied that the shadow on the sundial would recede 10 degrees. As it turned out, the sundial did indeed recede 10 degrees. So Isaiah put a pig flaster on Hezekiah's boils, and the king recovered quickly. According to the prophets, Hezekiah had been destined to be the redeemer of the people, who would bring back the exiled ten tribes of Israel and unite Israel and Judah again under the house of David. But this was forfeited, as Hezekiah was unable to stop himself from scheming again. A delegation from Merodach Baladan came to Jerusalem to congratulate Hezekiah on his recovery. Hezekiah welcomed the messengers, showing them all the treasures collected in the palace and the temple. However, Isaiah was displeased and told Hezekiah that he had committed a sin and that Judah would be on the road to ruin when everything would be carted off to Babylon, albeit not in Hezekiah's lifetime. As it turned out, the remaining 13 years of Hezekiah's reign was relatively peaceful. In 697 BC, he appointed his 12-year-old son, Manasseh, as co-regent. Judah started to recover, with an abundance of gold, silver, precious oils and spices flowing in to increase the wealth of the nation. A nation that was surrounded on all sides by tributary states and provinces of the Assyrian Empire, with only Egypt untouched so far to the southwest. Hezekiah was a pious ruler, but when he died in 687 BC, the old sinful ways of idolatry and polytheism would return with his son Manasseh. After the death of Merodach Baladan and the appointment of his son Ashurnanin Shumi as the ruler of Babylon, relative peace descended upon Mesopotamia, so that Sennacherib, it was Sennacherib's son, not Merodach Baladan's son. So that Sennacherib could concentrate on embellishing his capital of Nineveh. You could always sense though that the Elamites were just waiting to cause trouble. And in 694 BC, Elam did just that. Ashur Nadin Shumi was kidnapped by Elamites. Causing Sennacherib once more to send an army to recapture Babylon and execute any anti-Assyrian rebels. A Babylonian nobleman... Uh, Nergal Ushesib became the new king of Babylon. It wasn't long until Sennacherib was forced to act, retaking the city of Babylon and executing the rebels. So I don't know what this guy Nergal Ushesib was thinking, but he did indeed succeed in escaping, so he was not carted off to Nineveh. With no word of the fate of his son, Sennacherib mounted an enormous expedition to invade Elam that included the procurement of Phoenician ships that would sail down the Tigris River. This is the first time that the Phoenicians, the best seafarers in the world, are ordered to sail down into the Indian Ocean. Presumably they would be dissembled and then reassembled once they reached the Tigris River, rather than make the Arders journey round the tip of Arabia. 
Along the way, Sennacherib destroyed a number of Elamite settlements, causing the Elamite king to act. Okay, this is the Elamite king. I will try to pronounce his name. Halashu Inshuchinak guarded his forces in 693 BC and marched to meet the Assyrians near the Dijala river. Sennacherib's inscription at Nineveh describes this battle. And when you hear this inscription, remember that the Assyrians like propaganda so everything of this might not be entirely true with the dust of their feet covering the wide heavens like a mighty storm they drew up in battle array before me on the bank of the tigris they blocked my passage and they offered battle I put on my coat of mail, my helmet, emblem of victory, I placed upon my head. My great battle chariot, which brings low the foe, I hurriedly mounted in the anger of my heart. The mighty bow, which Asher had given me, I seized in my hands. The javelin, piercing the life, I grasped. I stopped their advance. I succeeded in surrounding them. I decimated the enemy host with arrow and spear. All of their bodies I bored through. I cut their throats like lambs. Cut off their precious lives as one cut string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the content of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the steams of their blood. As into a river, the wheels of my war chariot, which bring low the wicked and the evil, were bespattered with filth and blood. With the bodies of the warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Then they fled from me, and 150,000 of their warriors I cut down with the sword. Well, well, slow down there, Sennacherib. I know you want to go building. I know you're, you're pretty pissed off, but the Elamites could never mount 150,000 warriors. No one will believe that. You have to tone this down but it is classic Assyrian stuff although the number of warriors killed was probably an exaggeration as they tended to embellish casualty figures in the ancient world still it was a complete Assyrian victory and Sennacherib was able to return to Nineveh I wonder what he thought he had accomplished he had just taken revenge pretty much but this did not save his son and his son is still lost it's an unsolved disappearance it would be something for my true crime podcasts uh, presumably he was executed by the Elamites but um, uh, also this battle did nothing to help uh, reclaim the parts of southern Babylonia where the Chaldeans and the Elamites are having constant parties Sennacherib was now tired of Babylonia and he decided to return to his building projects after this great victory. Because of Sennacherib's inaction, Babylon decided this was fun, let's do it again. And they put the new king on the throne. In 693 BC, a Chaldean prince, Muchisib Marduk, succeeded the deposed Nergal Ushisib, who was captured by the Assyrians following the Battle of the Diyala River. Like the previous rulers, Muchisib Marduk threw in his lot with the Elamites against the Assyrians. 
Halushu Intuchinak, the Elamite king, had died in 693 BC, and following the brief reign of Kutir Nahunte III, another guy, Humanumina III, son of Halashu Intuchinak, became the king of Elam in 692 BC. Muchisib Marduk led the Babylonian populace in revolt against Sennacherib with the support of Elam, like every other time before. So is anybody learning anything from this? It doesn't seem like that everybody's just repeating the same pattern. Babylonia revolts, Elam helps out, Assyria comes down, beat them up, etc, etc. And it wasn't long before Sennacherib mobilized his forces again and led the royal Assyrian army south again. And of course he was extremely fed up. He just got back to building awesome stuff in Nineveh and now he has to go to war again. And in 691 BC the two forces clashed at the Battle of Halule. The battle was indecisive with both sides claiming victory although the Assyrians did suffer heavy losses. The only outcome was that all three rulers, Sennacherib, Muchisib Marduk of Babylon and the uh, Humbanumina third guy from Elam managed to keep their thrones for the time being. But Babylon was not out of the woods and in the next decade Sennacherib would come back with a vengeance and then he has another final solution for Babylon. And this will have dire consequences for everybody. It will have dire consequences for the city of Babylon, for the Babylonians and definitely for Sennacherib. But now we have to look at what was happening elsewhere during the 690s BC. Sometime around 700 BC, we begin to see the emergence of a second Greek poet who, if he lived, was seen. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That's the complete opposite as a poet and man to Homer. This is, of course, Hesiod. He is regarded as the first written poet in Western tradition to regard himself as an individual with an active role to play in his subject. Modern scholars refer to Hesiod as a major source on Greek mythology, farming techniques, early economic thought, Greek astronomy and timekeeping. The dating of Hesiod's life is contested in scholarly circles. However, Hesiod's surviving work comprises didactic poems that went out of his way to let his audience in on a few details of his life. 
his poem Works and Days, definitely the most famous thing he wrote, states that his father came from Syme, south of the island of Lesbos in Aeolis, on the coast of Asia Minor. He crossed the sea to settle a hamlet called Askra near Tespiai in Boeotia, mainland Greece, which Hesiod called a cursed place, cruel in winter, hard in summer and never pleasant. Hesiod owned a small piece of land at the foot of Mount Helicon, which attracted lawsuits from his brother Perses, who seems to have cheated him of his rightful share, thanks to corrupt authorities, but later became impervished, relying on the help from Hesiod. Although it seems that unusual that Hesiod's father would migrate from Asia Minor to mainland Greece, that is like going the wrong way, right? colonization you leave Greece you don't go back to Greece but the truth is is that by 750 BC there was a migration of seagoing merchants taking place from Syme to establish a shared colony with the Eubians at Cumae Campania in Italy the family association with Syme might explain Hesiod's familiarity with eastern myths that was evident in his poems although the Greek world could have developed their own versions of them at this time his first poem, Theogony, concerned the origin of the world and the birth of the gods. It does not include the Big Bang. Known as the succession myth, the poem, which runs 1022 lines, starts by describing chaos, from which sprang night and Gaia the earth. Next to emerge was Uranus, heaven, who produced many children with Gaia, including the Titans and the Cyclops. Hating his children, Uranus hid them away inside Gaia. Upset by this, Gaia produced a sickle and encouraged her youngest son, Kronos, to hide in ambush so that he could strike Uranus at the right moment. Sure enough, when Uranus came to sleep with Gaia, Kronos reached out and castrated his father with the sickle. Ouch! Now that Kronos was in charge of the cosmos, he wanted to ensure that he kept control of this power. His parents prophesied that one of his children would overthrow him. After marrying Rhea, Kronos made sure to swallow his children, Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades and Poseidon. When Rhea became pregnant with Zeus, she was fed up with this stupid uh, idea so she begged her parents Gaia and Uranus yep she had the same parents as Cronus so this is very incestuous and she asked them to help save Zeus so Rhea traveled to Crete to bear her son Gaia raised Zeus deep in a cave beneath a mountain in the meantime Rhea wrapped a huge stone in baby's clothes and gave it to Cronus and he thought oh it's my son Zeus and he swallowed the stone, thinking that he swallowed Zeus. This is not history, but Hesiod actually wrote about this. Although Theogony doesn't explain how Gaia tricked Kronos, the other five children emerged back into the world from Kronos' body, because Kronos had no digestion, apparently. Receiving thunderbolts as weapon from the Cyclops, Zeus declared war on the Titans, and it lasted ten years. And you can read about it in DC Comics. Finally defeated, the Titans were cast in Tartarus forever, and Zeus was elected king of the gods, apportioning various honors among the other gods, including Poseidon, who became god of the ocean, and Hades, who became god of the underworld. 
Zeus would then go on to father many gods and goddesses including Athena, Artemis, Persephone and Apollo. And he is more than a little rapey. The poem itself may have drawn inspiration from Akkadian and Babylonian creation myths such as the Enuma Elish which could have been passed to the Greek world as early as the 9th century BC when the colony of Almina was established in northern Syria as we talked about in the first Greek colony. Hesiod may have learned about world geography from his father's account of his own sea voyages as a merchant. His father spoke in the Aeolian dialect of Syme, but Hesiod grew up speaking the local Boeotian that belonged to the same dialect group. His second poem, Works and Days, was a didactic poem of 800 lines that described the operations of the farmer's working year and the astrologically lucky or unlucky days of the lunar month. Beginning with the invocation to the muses, the poem describes how Hesiod and his brother Perses became heir to a farm that was bequeathed to both of them. However, Hesiod berates his brother for squandering his wealth who wants more than his due share of their inherited land. Perses bribed the aristocrats to judge in his favor, so Hesiod attacked unjust judges who pocketed bribes whilst they rendered their unfair verdicts. Hesiod thought that instead of giving his brother money or property, it would be better to teach him the virtues of work and impart his wisdom to generate income. The poem then describes the descent of the world from the first golden age under Kronos, when men lived peacefully, to the current Iron Age, which is marked by endless strife and war. Although human life was noticeably hard, Hesiod believed that human life must be born with dignity, and above all, men must work hard all their lives. And he continues to give some farming advice, quote, When the Pleiades, Atlas' daughter, starts to rise, begin your harvest, and plow when they go down. He discourages Perses from trying to better his lot by trade as a merchant, emphasizing the peril of the sea and the shortness of the sailing season. Among such brotherly advice came the stories of Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods, and Pandora's box. Scholars see this work as a time of agrarian crisis in mainland Greece that would start a wave of colonization across the Mediterranean world. Despite Hesiod's complaints about poverty, life on the farm cannot have been too uncomfortable. In the poem, the farmer employs a friend, a servant, another servant, some more servants, a plowman of mature years, a slave boy, and a female servant. There are two versions as to where Hesiod is reputedly buried. Thucydides stated that the Delphic oracle warned Hesiod that he would die in Nemea. Hesiod fled to Locris where he was killed at the local temple to Nemean Zeus and subsequently buried there. The other version, according to Aristoteles' constitution of Orchomenus, stated that when the Thespians ravaged Ascra, the villagers sought refuge at Orchomenus where they collected the ashes of Hesiod and placed them in the Agora next to the tomb of Minyas, their founder. In 698 BC, Shutzi I, the ninth ruler of the state of Quinn, was assassinated by Sanfu and Fuji, who put Crown Prince Duke Wu on the throne. In the first year of his reign, Wu attacked the Pingqi tribe of the wrong people, advancing east to Mount Yua. 
further attacks on the wrong people occurred in 688 and 687 BC, whereby Wu established the counties of Gui, Ji, Du, and Cheng in former wrong territories to the east of Qin. As for Sanfu and Fuji, the assassins of Chuzi I, they will meet their ends at the hand of the person they held to the throne because Duke Wu would execute them for their crimes. Duke Wu ruled for 20 years and will be succeeded by Duke De in 678 BC. Meanwhile, in the state of Qi, Duke Qi was succeeded by his son Chiang in 698 BC. Chiang had an incestuous relationship with his younger half-sister Wen Yang, who had married Duke Huan of Lu in 709 BC. In 694 BC, Duke Huan visited Qi with his wife. Bad move, and this, as this enabled Chiang to continue his affair with his half-sister Wen Jiang. Wen Huan found out that his wife was doing the bad thing with her brother. He ordered his half-brother, Prince Ping Ching, to murder Huan. No, Chiang ordered his half-brother, Prince Ping Ching, to murder Huan. So Huan found out about the affair, but he had no time to react because Chiang immediately ordered his half-brother, Prince Peng Cheng, to murder Huan in his carriage after he got drunk. So the only thing Huan did was get drunk and then he was murdered. The people of Lu were incensed, but they could, do, could not do anything about it, as Kui was much more powerful. However, to calm the people of Lu because they were upset, Chiang went back to his half-brother, Prince Peng Cheng, and said, I'm sorry, bro, I have to execute you as a scapegoat and blame everything on you, which he did. Following Huan's death, Wen Jiang stayed in the state of Kui, continuing her relationship with her brother Chiang. In 693 BC, Chiang married Wang Ji, a daughter of King Chuang of Zhou, but she died a year later. Kui then went to war against the state of Yi, taking the cities of Ping, Qi, and Bu. In 691 BC, a younger brother of the Marquis of Yi defected to Qi. The Marquis of Yi fled in haste a year later, not even giving his wife a proper burial, and subsequently giving up the state to his treasonous younger brother. Qi was now in control of Lu. However, Duke Xiang did the proper thing and gave the princess of Lu a proper burial. Duke Xiang met his end in 686 BC at the hands of his cousin Wuxi. Wuxi had been a favorite nephew of Duke Xi, but was passed over the succession in favor of Xiang, being demoted to the status of Wu Qi. Xiang had injured his foot in a hunting trip, which gave Wuxi the opportunity to kill the duke in his palace with the aids of generals Liang Cheng and Guan Chi Fu. Both of them were military men that were being mistreated by Chiang, so good riddance to Duke Chiang. In 697 BC, the king, Huan of Zhou, remember we are talking about the Eastern Zhou dynasty now, that is entirely powerless. He is succeeded by his son, Zhuang of Zhou, and he became the 15th ruler of the Zhou dynasty and the third ruler of the Eastern Zhou. He ruled from 697 to 682 BC, but little is known about this guy, apart from the fact that his daughter Wang Ji married Duke Chiang, as already mentioned. Back to Phrygia! 
in 696 BC, the Cimmerians launched another attack on Phrygia in eastern Anatolia. The Cimmerians were known from several Assyrian texts which called them Gamir or Gemira. The last meaning is the people traveling back and forth. They were closely related to the Scythians who may have expelled them from their home country. Originally, the Cimmerians lived in uh, southern Ukraine, where archaeologists identified them with the Novosherkask culture on the plains between the rivers Prut and the lower Don between 950 BC. Men were buried with bows, swords, and spears, with evidence suggesting that they fought as, you guessed it, mounted archers, and their most precious possessions were cows. In the 8th century BC, many Cimmerians moved southeast to the region north of the Caucasus. They started to threaten the kingdom of Urartu, whereby King Rusa I decided to go on the attack. And you remember how that went. Rusa was defeated, the Cimmerians invaded Urartu and looted the country as far south as Lake Urmia. And that is pretty far south in Urartu. News reached Phrygia in Anatolia of the advancement of the Cimmerians. In 710 or 79, Midas asked for help from the Assyrian king Sargon II, as we have talked about, but this only delayed the inevitable. And in 696 BC, the Cimmerians arrived at the Phrygian capital of Gordium. And Gordium was sacked and destroyed, forcing King Midas to commit suicide by drinking bull's blood. A horrible way to go. Samarians started to settle on the Phrygian plain that was suited to their cavalry, which would be bad news for the emerging Lydian kingdom that was further west of Phrygia. And this is pretty much the end of the Phrygian kingdom, and it's sort of it's only it's only great during the time of Midas, so it's pretty weird. It's very short-lived compared to other kingdoms in the area. And there we have it for the 690s BC. If we proceed to the 680s, and I love to proceed to the end of the Assyrian Empire, which happens in this uh, century, in 612 BC, to be more precise. But if we proceed, next time we'll see what happens to the city of Babylon when Sennacherib returns. You will hear about Judah's monotheistic reforms under Hezekiah and how they are undone by his successor. And Egypt will come back into the story when a Kushite ruler shows up that will challenge the might of Assyria. Thank you, Shane, for the script. If you want to commend uh, Shane on his work, you can catch him on Twitter at Sarak002. So... Sarak with a set and 002. He also has a YouTube channel with gaming stuff on it. Check that out. And you can reach me on the Final History page on Facebook. Or you can reach me on Twitter where I am Dan Horning. And you can also reach me on Instagram on the same name. But then you have to put an umlaut of the O as my real name is Dan Horning. Now I don't know what I will do with this podcast. I want to continue. I don't have any scripts. I don't have any script writers. I don't have a co-host. I don't have any money. But you can help me with the money if you become a patron at 
fan of history and you only pay anything if I actually produce episodes so help me do that and uh, thank you for listening If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.